Xavier is dead. Apocalypse reigns. This is the Age of Apocalypse. Welcome to Power of X-Men Apocalypse, the podcast where we review every single issue of the classic reality-warping, high-octane, epic X-Men crossover event known as Age of Apocalypse. I am your co-host, Spring, And I am your other co-host, Mr. Scott Free. Folks, we're taking a little break from Age of Apocalypse this week because we have a very special, wonderful, extraordinary guest today. And that is right. We have Leo Williams. X-Men writer extraordinaire. Uh, she joined us and sat down with us to talk about X-Factor, Trial of Magneto, X-Men Black, and some of her other uh, work with um, Marvel. And it was, a, it was a great conversation, great deep dive. If you love to learn about Emma Frost and Walmart and, and North Star, it's just like we hit all the notes. Yeah. So if you're here for Leah Williams, welcome. If you're a longtime member of the Power of X-Men Familia, you're in for a treat. Scott, we do ask her the million dollar question about Trial of Magneto. Is it possible that Wanda may become a mutant at the end of the series? And, and she does give us a, a fairly straightforward answer without spoiling anything. I mean, obviously, we're not going to spoil it because we want you to listen. But uh, <laughs> listen to this. Listen to this. Uh, she does give us an answer. She gives us actually a bunch of answers on some like you know pressing questions on like trial Magneto and other stuff that's going on. And like you know, just I mean, listen, like take it in, just like enjoy, enjoy it almost as much as we enjoyed doing it. Before we roll the interview with Leah Williams, we just want to shout out our patrons for supporting us. Thank you to Gray from Aaron and Halar Podcast, Minimated, and W. Cole Weathers, who have been contributing to our Patreon. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, you know, just go there, smash that Patreon link, uh, join the family. And, you know, here is our interview with Leah Williams. Leah, everyone on X, Instagram, Twitter, like loves you. Oh gosh. Thanks. I, I love X Twitter and, and X-Men nerds on Instagram and in general too. <laughs> it's always a I, lot of fun. <laughs> your vibes are just so wonderful. And I remember how excited everyone was when it was announced you were going to be writing X Factor because you had been popping up around the X office with Age of X-Men and X-Men Black. And then when you started X-Factor, it's like everyone was just gravitating towards that book. Oh gosh, thank you so much. Yeah, it um, was a huge shock to me when when I was asked to write X-Factor. And I, I felt like Jordan, you know, Jordan B. White, senior X-Men editor. I was like, are you insane? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Why are you asking <laughs> me to do that? But it it definitely ended up being one of the the most satisfying and fulfilling experiences of my life. It was just totally exhilarating. It's been a wild ride and super exciting. 
Well, we, we have plenty of X factor questions because uh, Scott here may be obsessed with a certain grumpy mutant elf. Big, big North Star fan. So we'll, <laughs> well, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, a couple questions. <laughs> just some couple questions there. Couple questions. But before we get into X Factor, just we want to get to know a little bit about you. And can you tell us what was your first experience with the X Men growing up? So it was actually um, X Men Evolution, the cartoon. <gasps> I, I loved it, had a huge, huge crush on Goth Rogue. Um, but I, I grew up in like a small town in Mississippi where I didn't have access to comics. Um, well, not very many, at least. So what I did have was the X-Men cartoon, um, X-Men Evolution. And at James's Food Center, the grocery store, they had these like Archie and Jughead digests by the, the checkout counter. Um, so that was my first exposure to both comics and X-Men through the cartoon. And I didn't get into comics until I was in college. And I didn't get into X-Men comics until um, a year after I graduated and started working in a comic book shop because suddenly I had access to just so many back issues and I wanted to tackle X-Men continuity, which is kind of notoriously convoluted and difficult to get into. So I was like, okay, <laughs> challenge accepted. But I was still intimidated enough that I kind of came in at it sideways through the peripheral titles like Excalibur and X-Factor. So that's like my nostalgia center with X-Men comics. Um, the original Excalibur run is my favorite comic series of all time. And uh uh, you know, Peter David's X Factor, it just has a huge place in my heart too. You know, it's so funny that how you were talking about like X-Men continuity being notoriously difficult and all over the place. I credit the X-Men for my ability to like decipher like dense literary theory once I got into like college and I was reading stuff like Judith Butler and the dialect of sex. And that was just such a walk in the park when you've been reading comic books since you were like five and you had to figure out who Madeline Pryor was and why her time traveling son is older than her, but her clone is still around and raising them. It's, it's, it's like an informational fetch quest. <laughs> Well, and because like, you know, back in the, back in those days, you didn't have Wikipedia, you know, yeah. you, maybe, maybe you went on uncannyxmen.net and you read some of the articles or you got some of the X-Men encyclopedias, but you, you had to piece all this information together. And we were talking to Zeb Wells about that. It makes you like a little archeologist. Oh and, yeah, absolutely. And you know, Marvel Unlimited didn't exist. Um, these like pirated comic sites, uh, those didn't exist either. So you didn't have access to you know a digital library of back issues like on that note like what was it about like the x-men that like attracted you to them like what made the x-men like special for you um the fact that they're very they are othered and and while the marginalization metaphor obviously has its you know flaws and complications and it's kind of no longer as resonant as it was when Chris Claremont first implemented it in the 80s. Um, I, as like a young queer woman um, who, you know, grew up in Mississippi and didn't have access to queer representation, I didn't know that I was bisexual for most of my life. I thought I was just some kind of monster. Like I thought I was straight, but a little bit of a tart, you know, and it, it made me feel 
terrible and monstrous. And I just kind of carried that feeling for a very long time, right up until my world started expanding and I started, you know, connecting with more um, queer communities online and queer nerds and queer X-Men fans. And I think that there's something intrinsic about uh, queerness and X-Men comics um, or, you know, any any identity that is othered, there's there's a special connection to X-Men comics because it's a struggle that they're constantly dealing with. When you're very young and you're watching shows like X-Men Evolution, in my case, it was the X-Men animated series, but the idea that there's this school full of other people like you, other outcasts, and they're just waiting to welcome you. And, and you will be dysfunctional, you know, because that's what family is. And but yeah, it's about found family and community yeah. building. And, it, and it's a, such a powerful message for a, a kid or a young person to inhale. And I remember like there was such a difference between the way my primo red x-men like he saw wolverine popping his claws he saw storm conjuring like the weather and i was seeing the metaphor in it and you take so much out of the 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 idea of otherness and that specialness yeah absolutely okay you loved gothrog i mean gothrog is pretty incredible but when you got it i mean she's I, I feel like anytime gothrog comes up on like the feed everyone goes insane for her. She needs to make a comeback. Oh, absolutely. But, absolutely. <laughs> but um, when you started reading the comics, when you were reading Excalibur and X-Factor, what, did you have a particular favorite comic book X-Men? Um, I loved the dysfunction of the Excalibur cast. Like it was so irreverent and, um, you know, witty and, and quick and quippy. And I loved uh, the dynamic between um, Kurt and Megan and Megan and media and everybody, (laughs) Megan and humans and um, Rachel and Kitty, of course. And uh, Kitty in particular, I wouldn't call her my favorite character, um, but it's because she is the character who I see the most of myself in. And that means I'm a lot harder on her than I am other <laughs> characters. I just want her to be better than she is. And um, she in particular really resonates with my experience as a bisexual woman. And, you know, not knowing for a long time that bisexuality existed, but the way that she interacts with Rachel and with um, Saturnine, like there's lots of queer coded um, kind of sapphic relations that Kitty has with other characters. And I I could see my own experiences reflected in that. And I just want to like smack her on the back of the head and be like, get your shit together. You're bi. Okay. (laughs) Stop dating men named Peter. (laughs) Oh, Oh, Colossus. Oh, Peter Quill. Peter Wisdom. Yeah. You know, Kitty is one of those characters that I finally feel like in the books, she's come into her own because I've said this before. My problem with Kitty in the past has been she's whatever a a certain writer wants her to be. She, She can be a college ingenue. She can be in space or she can be the headmistress of the Xavier Institute. And I feel like what we've been seeing in Marauders has been a journey to really establishing her as a character. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I've really, really appreciated uh, Jerry Duggan's um, approach to it because that is something he had in mind from the very start. And we had lots of discussions about, you know, how to give Kate more, more agency and bring her back into a leadership role because she's by far earned it, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, remind people that she's fucking badass. Like she is literally a ninja she is literally <laughs> a ninja oh and she could be a valley girl too thinking of x-men evolution like yeah. that valley girl accent they gave her i don't know who oh my god it was, was so amazing yeah i i loved it i used to go to like burger king and i would try to do like the kitty accent when i was ordering and i'll never forget someone like mocked me back with that they're like they said something like like okay yeah sure and i was so thrown off by it but um yeah, i love <laughs> I, lo- I do love Kitty quite a bit in X-Men Evolution. Uh, I, I have to do an X-Men Evolution rewatch. Yeah, I, I do too. I own the DVDs too. Like I am fully empowered to do a rewatch <laughs> like right now if I wanted to. And sort of like the same vein, like at the opposite end of the spectrum, like who's your least favorite comic book mutant? Um, my gut instinct is to also say Kitty Pride. Um, <laughs> uh, because of what what I just mentioned. Um, let me let me see if I can find a better answer. Oh, Charles. Charles Xavier. Fuck oh Charles. yeah. Solid yeah. answer. Solid, Solid answer. answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Xavier and Beast. Beast is also good. We we rag on Beast all the time. I I like Beast. <gasps> I, I know. <gasps> I'm sorry. He's Leo doing, Williams. He's like really bad shit right now, but I yeah. don't think that it's it's out of character for him to have this kind of darker path, you know, because mm-hmm. he's always been kind of a mad scientist and you know, Ben Percy, if I trust any writer to to really explore that and do it justice, it's it's going to be Mr. Percy. Um Oh, and Mr. Percy I, is amazing. He's fantastic. I never knew what like non-toxic masculinity looked like in comics. And still I started reading Ben Percy writing Wolverine teaching Quentin Quire how to be a better man. And I was like, okay, I get this now. <laughs> I'm on board. Yeah, he's um he's such a phenomenal writer. Yeah, Xavier, yeah. I mean, he's he's a jerk and and we're so excited with everything that's happening obviously with Inferno. We we did see the interview with Jordan that Inferno's being delayed but like ah. So was there a particular story in the X-books that you look back on that just really resonated with you? So Grant Morrison's new accent definitely knocked me on my ass. Um <sighs> And I, I had never read anything like it. Um, and it was my first introduction to so many of those characters, Beak, uh, Tempest, um, and, you know, they're, they're kind of like a part of my X-Men DNA, I guess we would call it now. Um, so that was really formative. Uh, in addition to, like I said, Excalibur and X-Factor and also, um, the magic miniseries, the four issue magic miniseries oh, yeah. is, uh, okay. kind of indelibly ingrained into my X-Men DNA because I keep revisiting it over time. And it means so much more to me now as like 
a grown-up who's been through some shit and I'm able to recognize more of, you know, what, what is kind of seeded throughout it, the themes of like trauma and abuse and that kind of thing that I wasn't really able to see past face value upon my first read. And it's, it's so, it's so dear to me. And so is magic. Isn't it wonderful that you can revisit certain stories and like see different layers in them? I think that's just such a beauty of being a comic book stand. And as you age with these characters and you look back on those Absolutely. narratives. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and speaking of uh, Graham Morrison, they've had their own really big journey. And I'm forgetting the quote when, when they came out as uh, non-binary and I, I want to remember what they said, but they, they said something to the effect of that they had always done something and they never knew there was a word for it until now. And it was just so beautiful hearing that. And, and I think, I, I mean, I think the world of Morrison, I mean, Morrison brought me back to the books with new X-Men. That was a phenomenal story. Yeah. It was well, groundbreaking. You know, after some of the stuff in the nineties, like big sort of tonal shift and, you know, set the stage for everything that's come like since, but like, how, how does it feel to like be part of sort of like the legacy now of like the X-Men, like following like, you know, uh, Lee and Kirby and Claremont and Morrison, like, like, what is it like to be part of that? In all honesty, I've compartmentalized it. I don't, um, view myself as being a part of that legacy. <laughs> I, um, I, I don't know. There's just something kind of discordant. <laughs> I can't wrap my brain around it, but what I can wrap my brain around is what an honor it is to be a part of kind of this era of X-Men. Like I'm a very proud part of Hickman's X-Men and it's, it's like, I think literally the best thing that's ever happened to me um, this this time in in my life and getting to work with these peers who've become my very favorite people on the planet, um, all the other X-Men writers, it's, it's been absolutely phenomenal. So that's something that I do, you know, have so much pride and gratitude for, but I do not categorize myself even remotely <laughs> similarly to, you know, the, the greats that came before me, that it, it, it's a different time, different style of comics, different, different industry, different everything. Yeah. Speaking of different everything, one of the things the X office has been doing in the Hickman era is be on your legendary X Slack. And everyone we've spoken to from Jordan D. White to Zeb Wells talks about how amazing it is. And we were, I was talking to Kelly Thompson on another podcast I do. And she was here like, yeah, the Spider-Man Slack isn't as good as the X-Men chat, like Slack. Like that is legendary. It is fully feral. And it's like my favorite <laughs> place to hang out on the internet. The moment that the X-Slack came into being um, is when all of us started hanging out less on like Twitter and Instagram, because suddenly we had this unhinged water cooler chat for like X-Men writers uh, and editors specifically. And it just became the place to be. And it was like that before the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, um, we 
we're all working on 10 of swords and we got into the habit of just like waking up and first thing, checking the slack and it would be, you know, full of chatter every single day. And one of my favorite things uh, about the X slack uh, that I learned during that time is like getting to wake up every morning and find um, Jerry Duggan's night posts alongside the Brits normal hours posts. Like we would wake up to this entire conversation that happened overnight while the rest of us were sleeping. And it was like Christmas morning, just seeing how, silly jerry gets as the night goes on and everybody else is asleep but i i love that you guys are are on that slack because ten of swords i mean jordan said something like he was so happy with it everything blah 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 he's like oh but there were a few mistakes i was like no you guys had such a tight story there and like everything just lined up and I don't, I, I think it shines through in everything in the Hickman era and, and the data pages and everything. I mean, you guys can tell that you guys are so organized and you're setting the bar for other offices. I'm glad to hear it because I think that we really enjoy it. Yes. Like, we, we enjoy it. We um, do think that it makes the stories better and more cohesive because, uh, you know, we're all on the same page. We know what's happening in each other's books. So we don't struggle, you know, with sharing the same sandbox or, or that kind of thing. I think having kind of a communal space for every office is a great idea. I, I didn't know they were doing that, but I'm happy to hear it. That sounds <laughs> cool. And um, I, I don't think that it's X-Men. X-Men is kind of intrinsically feral in and of itself. Um, so I don't think that anything is going to be as uh, insane as the X-Slack in particular. Like, you know, you've got Hickman and Zeb and Jerry and Ben and me and Teeny and Vita. And all of these people are like, so much more hilarious and uh, outgoing than you've ever seen on social media. <laughs> so putting them into like a, a concentrated space just makes it all the more evident. I have thousands of screenshots of the dumb shit yeah. my peers say. <laughs> I, I am so in love. It's, it's so much fun. Well, speaking about being so in love, we love your X-Men Black Eva Frost. And I knew it was going to be such a special issue when we opened up with Emma meeting Rogue at a Walmart style store and Rogue whispering to Emma and Sugar, I just thought it would be funny. I mean, that was brilliant. <laughs> that was such yeah. a brilliant opening. Thank you. Like, I um, can I see your so... notes? How did you nail both characters so well? Yeah, it's, in it's that perfect. Scene? I'll um, send you a copy of the X Men Black Emma Frost script if you're interested in seeing it. Um, oh, because it's it's you know one of the first things that I wrote for Marvel. Um, I think like the first full issue I wrote for Marvel um, on my own. And I, uh, it, it's very clear how my mindset was. Um, I don't deserve this <laughs> in the way that I would add notes into the footnotes, like trying to explain myself and that kind of thing. So compared to the way that I write scripts now, which is um, I basically 
write with the intention of making Jordan laugh. Like, you know, I, I story for everybody. I story for readers. I story for all of us, but I script for the people who are going to be reading the script. And it's, um, you know, like manic pixie shit. It is, it is full of inside jokes and links to playlists and completely inappropriate jokes that I would never get away with making if I didn't, you know, if I wasn't really close with the people that were going to be reading it. Um, and the X-Men Black Emma Frost script, uh, you know, my first foray into something like this. And I was so amazed at how much freedom I was given. I thought that I was going to have to justify the Walmart thing you know, like stand my ground on it. And being from Mississippi, um, you know, Walmart is, <laughs> is a place yeah. you go to. There, there is nothing else open that late. So when you're yeah. like, you know, a teenager and there's no movie theaters open late and you're too young to get into bars and that kind of thing. And you've got nowhere to go. The Walmart is the only thing that's open. So it's where teenagers hang out at night. And I remember and I still have um, this uh, photo that I took, but I remember being in there at like 4 a.m. one night, that way past my curfew, and uh, just kind of like wandering the aisles. And then I um, uh, turned down the like greeting card aisle just by chance. And there was a woman, most beautiful woman I have ever seen, dressed in all white like bending over to peer closely at some greeting cards. And I just like stopped dead in my tracks and then slowly reached for my cell phone and like took a creeper photo of her. Of course, I've never posted it anywhere or shared it or anything like that. Um, <laughs> it didn't but, land on peoplewalmart.com. No, <laughs> absolutely not. No. But of course, now looking back at it, I'm like, you idiot. How did you not know you were queer? Like what is wrong with you? <laughs> well, so, I love that you manifested or, or you saw this Emma Frost there yeah well it's yeah, what made me think of like you know okay I I had completely forgotten about that memory until I started writing X-Men Black Emma Frost and I was thinking mm -hmm. about you know where they would meet up in the beginning and that memory like you know surged forth from the depths of my subconscious and I was like oh my god I have to <laughs> like not only is Walmart integral to my existence as a Mississippian like rogue um, but also integral to my queer awakening <laughs> well like what with, with all that, like, what was it like writing Emma, uh, like, for X-Men Black? You know, I mean, it, it sounds like you saw, like, you know, Emma Frost, like, doppelganger at Walmart. So, like, what, what was it like, like, writing her? Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it was her doppelganger in Walmart so much as it was a woman in white. She was brunette. Um, but, uh what was it like writing Emma Frost? Okay, so I'm obsessed with Emma Frost in a way that like isn't cool or easy to deal with if you're my editor. And I'm really lucky that Jordan has so much like kindness and patience um, as a human being because when he first asked me to do this and I was bringing him like my initial pitches and stuff, like what I wanted to accomplish for this character, um, I basically sent him an email that was like 1200 words of Emma Frost fan fiction. And, you know, this is like my, 
my first year writing for Marvel, I didn't know what the conventions were and what the appropriate behavior was and if that was even okay, but it was okay because I, you know, was working with Jordan and he uh, looked at all of my, my thoughts and my concerns and what I wanted to do. And um, out of the, the pitches that I gave, uh, the one we, I can't even remember, remember the other ones because we ended up going with my favorite one, the one that I most hoped uh, would get greenlit, which is, you know, Emma Frost becoming the Black King. Yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, I love that ending, that monologue. I mean, talking about grief and everything she's been through and, and, and that relationship with Shaw. I mean, that was wonderful. It was such a beautiful, powerful story. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was an honor to be able to uh, tell that story because it happened, you know, coming out of like IVX and the Terrigen Mist stuff and its path had been kind of taken a darker turn. And I wanted to sort of give her more agency and and more opportunity to uh, make her own choices and and follow her own morality and that kind of thing. And I was so, so excited to do something additive with her and give her uh, kind of new directions to go in. So with that in mind, obviously in Hoxpox, that kind of gets reversed because Emma point blank says, you want me to bring back Shaw, but I I just got rid of him. Were you disappointed with that new direction with with, with Emma? Did Did you have another idea in mind for her and it just morphed with, when Hickman came on board? No, not at all. I, I was totally happy with the way that it panned out. Um, and I have a screenshot of when, you know, I guess this was a couple years ago now, um, when Hickman was talking about that scene and bringing Emma in for that kind of thing before he had written it. And um, other people in the Slack were like, oh, she's the Black King of Hellfire Club now. Um, She's taken Shaw out. And then Hickman's response was like, what? When did that happen? What? And then um, I think it was Jerry answered, or no, it was Jordan, X-Men Black, Emma Frost. And then Hickman was like, all right, let me read it. And, And then clearly, you know, just like, put out by the fact that this this continuity existed that kind of gets in the way of what he's doing um but then i was hired on to be part of his wave too so like it all worked out for all of us in the end like he he was frustrated uh when he heard about that and then somebody sent him the pdf to x-men black and frost and then like two weeks later, I was asked to write X Factor. So that was his introduction to me. And um, he ended up, I think, really honoring her character in in the way that he brought her in. Uh, When we get to that moment of Emma Frost agreeing to be a part of this, you know, uh, the way that she answers Magneto and uh, Charles is, all right, then one more time for the children. And oh, I just yeah. wept. I was so happy. And uh, I thought it was amazing. Um, and I fully well, trust Hickman with Emma in general, because he thinks that she's the coolest X-Men that there is. Mm-hmm. I, I think Emma is absolutely wonderful. And Hickman writes her very beautifully. You have written her very beautifully as well. And I, 
that scene in, in, in Hoxpox where she's here, like to Magneto, you, an, an island again, you should know better to Magneto. I thought that was brilliant. Just yeah. uh, those yeah. little nuances like that. And Emma deserves to be elevated on the same level as Charles and Eric. I mean, it, Emma is there, period. So I love seeing her there. Yeah, them. absolutely. I totally agree. Well, just just to like sh- change directions for like a sec. Um, so like X Factor, X Factor. I I love X Factor, and it's a big fan favorite, particularly on like X Twitter, and especially among like LGBT uh, Q um, X Men fans. And it's like, h- how does it feel to have like created a book that's loved by like so many parts of the community? It feels like I came close to holding up my end of the bargain. Um, I, as a creator, the, my approach to telling stories is, um, I, I think that anything with an audience has a responsibility to that audience. Uh, and the bigger the audience, the bigger your responsibility to them. And it is your responsibility, your ongoing responsibility to construct a series of mirrors that show readers the world as it is with themselves represented in it, because to deny someone their likeness is to make them feel monstrous. Uh, it, it makes them feel like they don't belong in this world. And in X-Men stories, especially kind of this new era where we've made Krakoa, an island open to all mutants, a safe haven. Um, it was really important to me to kind of do justice to that, to like really commit to, um, you know, giving as authentic a story as I could. And the way that the X Factor cast happened wasn't because I was specifically looking for, you know, a very queer cast. It was because I was going off of the characters that were still left available for wave two books, because obviously, you know, a lot of the A-listers by that point were uh, tied up in the books that had already started. So I had kind of a limited pool of characters to choose from. And my approach was to look for uh, the people with the best uh, investigative application of their mutant abilities. And, you know, they ended up, it ended up being a really queer cast um, after the fact, uh, after I had, you know, looked at everyone through a forensic lens. And it's because there were a lot of queer characters left over and because I'm not afraid to, you know, show nuances of queer friendship and queer community. That, I mean, the the book does so much for representation and that's why it just like resonates with so many of us. And when, when you were, when, when Hickman came on board and you were, you were planning wave two, did you know you were going to do x-factor like the title was going to be x-factor given your history with uh, the original peter david x-factor uh yeah it was x-factor from the beginning like when i first spoke to jordan about this um you know the way that it was brought to me was how would you feel about writing x-factor as part of you know wave two of hickman's x-line um and my response was you know are you out of your fucking mind Um, (laughs) but it is it is kind of different in the way that, you know, for example, how Teeny's Excalibur happened. Uh, Teeny Howard and Marcus Toe working on Excalibur, 
the way that that came about, and each time I tell this story, I kind of mythologize everybody involved a little bit more. Oh, mythologize little, it. We're here for it. A little okay. less realistic from where it started. But basically, in the first X-Men Summit, um, Hickman presented his, you know, new new direction and, and what was happening with the X-Men world to the room of Wave One writers and gave everybody the night to just kind of like digest it all and see if they came up with any ideas, that kind of thing. And Teeny immediately locked on to this thinking of like, what would mutant magic look like? Because this is the first time they've had an opportunity to develop it. And when she brought in, you know, her like pages of notes the next day and ideas about like mutant synergy and magic and that kind of thing, after she finished uh, talking about it, Hickman just kind of sat there for a second and then looked at her and he was like, you know what this is, right? This is Excalibur. Like, ah. this is the Excalibur book. Yeah. So that's how that happened, um, which I find so magical and lovely. But for me, it was like, I was approached to write the death book. That your original vision of it as like the death book? No, the death book is the purpose that it serves in the overall line. And this is what Hickman said to me in my first X-Men Summit um, when I had like, you know, just met him about for the first time, like an hour prior to him pointing at me from across the conference room table and going, you have the hardest book to write. You have the death book and this is a deathless culture. So you by far are writing the most difficult book to tackle like, oh, gee, thanks. Um, but it's it's because there needed to be a death book and, um, you know, something to, like, explore that, that side of things uh, and kind of round out the line as a whole in Krakoan storytelling. So that was what I was presented with. And what I brought to it is I also want it to be the resurrection book. I want it to be both death and life. So I asked if I could include the five. When you were thinking of it being a resurrection book, I'm trying to remember, was there early marketing copy about, you know, this is the book to answer all your questions about resurrection. Like what if a mutant feels more complete being resurrected with Magneto's power or, you know, resurrected as a different sex? Was, were those some original concepts that were being thrown around when you were thinking about resurrection? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, um, it is something that I did have to kind of course correct in my earliest pitches. And, you know, I'm eternally grateful to Hickman for kind of mentoring me in how to look at storytelling from a bigger picture, because my initial pitches that I brought in were super uh, destructive because I was basically like stress testing um, Krakoan world building, you know, like my pitches represented, uh, what I thought the flaws in the entire system are. And, you know, like, here's where your world can break down, Hickman, <laughs> basically. And he was like, okay, I see your point. Um, help me. <laughs> wait, 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 is there a specific example yeah. that you can share um, I mean, I'm sure. I just can't remember exactly what it was. Uh, I, oh, <laughs> brothels. So I was thinking about what Krakoan brothels would look like and the fact that there would be, you know, because Krakoa can grow meat on trees. So what's to stop Krakoa from growing like kind of 
sex dolls. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was thinking about like how messed up that would be. And uh, it would be super, super messed up. Um, and I'm glad that we ended up not going with that because instead of, you know, breaking the world, uh, like, which would have happened for my initial pitches, uh, Hickman was like, well, let's, let's go back to your concept of stress testing it, do this, but make it stronger, fix it, like, uh, make it additive instead of subtractive. Um, and that ended up being hugely beneficial to like, that was a game changer for me as a writer in general, not just with X factor, but kind of moving forward and everything that I do now, I look at ways to make it additive because even without knowing, um, you know, the, the word or the narrative concept of that, it was what I, it was my goal for, uh, X-Men Black Emma Frost. I wanted to do something additive. And, um, now it's, it's just kind of my, my general approach. I, I want there to be more opportunities for storytelling because I think, especially in this medium, um, comics, which has an enormous continuity, it's important to think about, you know, leaving stuff for future writers to pick up on if they want to not close a door, instead leave a series of open doors. Well, was, was like, there anything that like Marvel or the editorial staff said that was like explicitly like off the table that like, you can't do this? Um, trying to think, uh, I mean, no, because it's Jonathan Hickman, no door is ever like slammed shut. Um, because if he likes it, then he's going to fight for it. And he is like, sometimes we call him, um, Papa Godzilla because he's like, <laughs> I mean, we call him Papa Hickman, but sometimes we also call him like Papa Godzilla just because he's a Goliath, you know, he has so much influence and he always uses it for good for the, for the good of his creators and, and the people he works with. Um, so it, there was no, I would say there's no hard no that, that I encountered it was more like the notes that I was given um, were along the lines of like, here's, here's how to um, play in the sandbox better with everything else that's going on. And that's hugely important um, for like a shared landscape and world building. X Factor in terms of world building did a lot. And you toured so many places and you tackled a lot of characters. I, and, and, and you unearthed plots that people assumed were going to be forgotten about. I mean, and you, you, you brought back Rachel's powers. Like you, you, you understood Rachel's powers. So when you look back on everything you did with X Factor, was there a particular arc character that you you enjoyed writing I, I could say that of of everybody on the cast mm -hmm. I whenever I write a new x-men character and you know I'm there in my head and I in theirs it, it's this kind of strange fictional intimacy and they mentally get sorted into a category in my head labeled like these are my babies now and mm -hmm. when I finish a project and they go on to like their next, you know, adventure in somebody else's book. I have empty nest syndrome afterwards. Like I miss <laughs> them and I think about them. I want the best for them. So 
I and uh, David Baldion, my um, X Factor artist, and and now one of my favorite people on the planet, um, co-conspirator, partner in crime, we absolutely fell in love with our cast, and uh, they they just became our babies. Um, we we were so excited to give them you know, new stories moving forward. And uh, in the case of somebody like iBoy to really like flesh him out and give him, yeah. you know, more yeah. storytelling that he's he's not yet had the chance to do because he's relatively new. Well, I mean, like I'm, I'm like a fanatical North Star fan, the North Star cosplayer. Paul had to talk me out of wearing the ears. Um, <laughs> oh my God, was... you totally could have though. I would have loved it. I, I'm saying like, North Star fanatic. See, I, I told you. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, Jeez. Next but, time. But what, next was, time. what was it like to take like a character like Jean-Paul who, you know, obviously in the Marvel universe and, you know, both in and inside now was one of the, the first character to come out um, soldier BT publicly. What was it like to take North star sort of tackle him as like a leader from like that angle? Okay, so you know when, if you guys have pets, you know when you can hear your like dog chomping on something. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh wait, yes. We just got out of a six-hour flight. We we we're in LA now. We just got in from New York. Look at his shirt. He was flying with. Oh my god! Adorable. What's his name? His name is Apollo, aka Spider Palm. Oh, precious. So you know when you hear your dog chomping on something and it's like not chomping hours. So you're like, what's in your mouth? What do you have? And then your dog will like dart off, like run away from you. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of like getting a hold of North star, I'm the dog and <laughs> Marvel's the pet owner. Like I just immediately started sprinting with North star because I I became obsessed with him during extremists um, age of X-Men extremists because it was like heart wrenching and traumatizing. And I'm, I'm not like using that word in kind of a lightened capacity. I mean, traumatizing to write um, a queer character having to be forced back into the closet as a queer writer. It was so painful. Um, so afterwards, of course, <laughs> I'm like obsessed with North Star and obsessed with his legacy, which is hugely important, obsessed with Kyle, his husband. And I want to, you know, do as much as I can for as long as I can to push their story uh, forward for as far as I can get it. And um, it he was the first character that I reached for coming out of um, extremists and, you know, doing X factor next. Uh, the first two characters that I asked for were North star and Jubilee um, because I had written them in extremists, but Jubilee was busy in Excalibur and thankfully North star was available um, to be my team lead. And it just seemed like a perfect kind of, alignment of storytelling of everything that North Star has been through, everything that has radicalized him, his entire history, and the fact that he's anti-government, anti-fascist, anti-cop, um, and a former domestic terrorist <laughs> who supported, uh, you know, uh, 
Quebec's uh, like separatist movement, he he's perfect for this kind of thing in Krakoa because he's suspicious of Charles. He's suspicious of the establishment and he cares more about people than he cares about um, following the rules. And I love that about him. I, I, I adore it and I find it kind of like healing and cathartic to have somebody like him in a leadership role. I'm speechless. That was beautiful. I, I have goosebumps yeah. by the way you were describing his, how you're the, the approach to him and the kind of character he is. I almost started crying talking about it. I, <laughs> I, could hear I, it I love your voice. him. I, I, yeah. I love him so much and I rarely get to like talk about him at this kind of depth mm. because he's prickly he's an asshole. He is not like a crowd favorite. And I, that's fair to say it's, it's why we love him. He's a curmudgeon. And I was also excited about the opportunity to continue writing him because, you know, I feel like sometimes his rough edges get sanded away because, you know, maybe, and, and maybe I'm, imagining this but sometimes I feel like straight writers are afraid to portray him as prickly and kind of mean as he really is because they don't want to come across as being disrespectful to a gay man um and I was so ready to write him as the asshole that he is because it's it's one of my favorite things about him I find it so refreshing and what I love most about um kind of cranky curmudgeons like North Star is the fact that they are that way for the re- for a reason. People who are that prickly and curmudgeonly, the reason they're like that is because they have to be more defensive and on guard in order to protect just the softest heart, like radically compassionate, brutal heart possible. So when you get past those barriers, you know, that kind of defensive structure they've built around their heart you're you're in that fortress for life you you are one of this person's ride or dies for the rest of your life and it's you've earned their trust um and i i just think it's so magnificent people like that and characters like that i i don't want to jump ahead because we still have a couple questions about x factor but the scene in trial magneto feels so the way with him and quicksilver feels so earned because of what you just said about the kind of character he is and, and how he has to be. But when you're finally in there with him, it's a ride or die. But like that moment where Quicksilver's like, you know, she was my sister, she was ill and all this stuff. And Northstar's like, I get it. You know what I mean? And, yeah. And, and it's immediate and it was because so, he does. Yeah. Because, and, and you didn't have to spell it out there for anyone. Like people who read like, oh Yeah. Actually, North Star is the only person on this island who understands Quicksilver's pain right now. And, and that's physically the only person who can handle Quicksilver, you know, yeah, yeah. like it was yeah. just this kind of, um, you know, I, I use the word alignment, but like alchemy also in, in terms of their character histories, the similarities between them. I saw that moment from miles and miles away when I first started working on Trial of Magneto. That was that page was one of the moments that I immediately knew um, had to be uh, shown somewhere in the first issue, just because I, I could not, couldn't not bypass that. 
Before we get into Trial Magneto, though, an- another character that's just done so well in X Factor that everyone's loved is Polaris. And how did how did you feel being the one writing Polaris and sort of making her, giving her a position in the Krakoan age, and then she's up for nomination at the Hellfire Gala for the Krakoan X Men? Were were you afraid of losing her? I wasn't because at the time that I put her forward for um, the X-Men nomination, I oh, you put her forward. You, you, did everyone put a character? For, oh, yeah. Well, OK, so here's how it happened. Um, everything we do in the X office is like a conversation and a collaboration when it comes to kind of moving around the big pieces on the board. So we had been working on this X-Men vote for. I don't know, maybe like a year and a half, we knew it was coming. So uh, finally, it came to the point where uh, Jerry was asking us like, okay, so who do we think would be good for the vote? Who do do we want to put forward? And we started tossing out names. And I, at the time, had plans for a third arc that was mostly featuring like North Star and Aurora and um, Rachel. So I was like, okay, you know, Polaris, she, she's going to have some free time. Um, I've got a couple issues that heavily feature her, but then this other stuff, you know, we're going to be off adventuring with these characters. So she's got some free time and I put her forward. And then um, Jerry was like, what? Are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, 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 of course. And then Jordan was like, are you sure? And I was like, no, come on. Like, why are you gaslighting me? She'd be awesome. <laughs> and I was thinking in terms of, you know, how how much Polaris fans would love to see her on the X-Men and how like the timing is perfect because she's just had like her eat, pray, love gap year, um, letting North Star lead X Factor. And she's had time to self-actualize and like really figure out who she is for the first time. So she's ready for something like this. She's ready for more responsibility. She's kind of stable. She's, you know, looking out for herself and living her best single life. Like it seemed perfect to me. I did not once think of um, gifted stands. I forgot about the MCU completely. <laughs> forgot about like all of that uh, side of things and um, had a great time taking a heel turn on Twitter and antagonizing gifted stands and like you know because they were just unhinged they were in my my mentions telling me like bow down before your queen and I'm like <laughs> I will kill her just to spite you. <laughs> you have no idea who you're talking to um so I had a great time it was <laughs> the X-Men vote for all of the X writers was a fantastic time we loved seeing people get involved with it and um you know interact with the vote every day it was like uh just waking up to new exciting developments in the X-Men vote because we didn't know if people were going to participate at all we we didn't know if people would enjoy it um so that was how that happened. But then, I, of course, I also thought I would be getting her back um, mm. because X Factor at the time, you know, had plans for a like third arc. So <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't make the same choice again, but it's not because I wasn't right about her being a great fit for X-Men. It's because I don't like the way that... Um, 
you know, non-comics readers were treating comics readers during the vote. It, it was really, you know, kind of upsetting to see uh, the way that they were not even, you know, involved in what's happening. They thought it was just like a popularity contest and were antagonizing comics readers about it. Um, but, you know, being an X-Men creator and like having the platform that I do, it, it was an honor to take a heel turn and just antagonize the shit out of them in return because I can do something like that. <laughs> so, yeah. For me, one of the great things in X-Factor is getting to see some characters who really haven't interacted much in the past uh, interact and like seeing like, for example, like Aurora and uh, Akihiro, um, start to get into sort of like a relationship was like really interesting because those were like two characters I never would have like thought about um being together in the past and like how like how did you come up with that as like a pairing it was one of those things that like the North Star and Quicksilver moment um in Trial of Magneto the Aurora Akihiro ship I saw that from miles away because it was just one of those things where um, I could see the similarities first and foremost, like their, their histories, their relationship histories, the way that they both have this kind of darker undercurrent to them and, um, you know, the Aurora personality versus the Jean-Marie one, like, uh, especially I would say is more attuned to like violence and, and chaos and action and that kind of thing. And then of course, you know, we've got Dawkins who is just absolutely entranced by how Aurora keeps him guessing and, you know, keeps him on his toes and he can't quite figure her out because she's too multifaceted. Um, so it, it keeps things interesting and the traumas in their backstory are also kind of symmetrical. Did you give any advice to Steve Orlando because he's going to be taking them uh, to Marauders? Um, I, I wouldn't call it advice necessarily. It was more <laughs> like when he brought his plans to the ex-officer the first time, he already included Aurora and Dawkins, and I just gasped with delight, like, oh my gosh, yeah. really? He's <laughs> so happy, you know? Because you'd think, like, he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to, uh, nobody has to continue this relationship. But the fact that it is happening, it just made me melt. Like, I was so happy about it. And we've since had, you know, just like, long conversations about it and how excited I am about his plans. And he was excited to, to tell me about it because he knows it's really good. <laughs> he knows he's got some amazing stuff in the pipeline for Marauders. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was advice so much as like we geeked the fuck out together about these characters and it was so lovely. It's, it's like an interesting dynamic because like we who are not professionals like geek out about these characters and I'm just supposed to be incredible to actually like get paid to geek out <laughs> about these characters oh yeah it's, uh, it's very surreal yeah staying on x-factor but sort of pivoting a little bit to like trial of magneto like was was that originally supposed to be an x-factor story that just became something else 
yeah, it was something that I pitched as a part of my uh, third arc for X Factor because the third arc was basically going to be the theme of the entire thing was going to be family. So the plan was to have, um, you know, this, this stuff with House of M through like a murder investigation uh, going on, but also North Star and Aurora, we're going to be exploring their origins because we know they're mutants and something else. Um, obviously they are mutant and something else, the, the ears, the, you know, shared powers, that kind of thing. Um, it cannot all be explained by an X gene. And it's, it's never really been textually canonized where, where they, they get all of these attributes. So we were going to be exploring that. And we were also going to be, you know, exploring a lot of stuff with uh, Rachel and having her kind of Krakoan identity being questioned because it's like, hey, she's from a different timeline. Why does she have access to resurrection services? But like Bloodstorm doesn't and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but then the trial of Magneto story ended up being kind of such a popular pitch that uh, immediately it was like, okay, wait, we have to kind of clear the runway and then focus on this because we love this. Um, and it became a much, much bigger story than what I had pitched. Um, and it was, I was super intimidated because this is no small undertaking, uh, the Scarlet Witch and her relationship with mutants. That's, that's huge. That is a very, very, very big thing. So I understand, you know, why, why it became necessary to focus everything on, on that and make it, you know, a much bigger deal than kind of background fodder and X factor. In any point in the editorial process of creating Trav Magneto and the story with the, with the Scarlet Witch being murdered was the idea of tackling her mutant identity going sort of back to it or exploring it. Did that ever come up when you were drafting the story? Oh, of course, of course, because, um, you know, it's, it's such a huge part of her origin story and she's still even not as a mutant, um, being who she is, her identity is kind of indelibly tied to mutants, um, mm. to, to mutant identity, just on the basis of events. Um, so of course it came up and, and I asked about it. Um, I can, <laughs> what, what, okay. What can I say? I just don't want to get anybody's hopes up. Like I, I asked, I, I was interested. Um, mm -hmm. but because of kind of other circumstances, uh, I would say outside of the MU. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, there's like a show and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I had to make sure that I wasn't going against kind of existing plans, if that makes sense. Um, so, so, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the show, what did you think of WandaVision? <laughs> yeah, yes. Come on, give us some of that tea. Okay. So there was definitely a moment in, like, I'd say maybe the second episode or the first episode where they're sitting at the dinner table and, um, you know, they've just like moved to this town and Vision has started a new job and they've got Vision's boss over for dinner. 
And there's a moment when stuff starts to kind of unravel there and we see beyond the surface of what's going on. That moment took my breath away. I got chills. It was perfect. Um, I, I thought the rest of it was overhyped. Um, I, from the way that people were talking about it online, I was expecting, you know, something totally different. Yeah. You weren't expecting Evan Peters to be Ralph Boner. (laughs) (laughs) See that part. I liked that part was so Ah. irreverent and silly Mm -hmm. that it kind of, you know, I, I had been getting bored. I like, I hadn't been as invested, but then, you know, Evan Peters showed up and I was like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> um, so how would you sum up your, uh, your, your perspective on the Magneto and Wanda relationship? Like, what, what do you think drives that relationship? Um, I mean, it's, it's a father daughter relationship. They, uh, have been through a lot. And I think that Magneto is a magnificent man who struggles to kind of open up and show his emotional side to show warmth and that kind of thing, because it comes from PTSD and trauma. And, uh, you know, from being radicalized at a young age, he doesn't know how to uh, be like a warm fatherly figure. He knows how to be paternal. He knows how to Mm -hmm. be a leader. He doesn't know how to be a dad. How did you come up with sort of, you know, the the sort of the shock of Wanda being murdered? Um, Like was- Well, at the time that that I pitched it, I was writing the death book. So it seemed kind of natural. (laughs) Fair, that's that's fair, yeah. (laughs) I don't think that I would have, pitched it that way if if you know I wasn't writing the murder investigation book like I I'm not sure I would have made the same choice in a different context um but that said I I think that the way that everything wraps up in trial of Magneto issue five I would not change that for anything I am very pleased with um how far we will we were able to get with the story that started with her murder what can we expect from trial of magneto in the next uh couple issues uh yeah i mean to expand on it and going back to what i was saying about everything i've learned from jonathan hickman about additive storytelling the whole goal with trial of magneto my goal as a writer is i wanted to build an empathy engine I wanted to repair a lot of the contempt between Wanda and between mutants and, you know, between the larger House of M um, because like House of M as an event is just, you know, seminal storytelling. There, there will never be another story like that. And I'm not trying to play karaoke by emulating past stories. I want to do something additive that opens doors to move forward for new kinds of stories. So that was my approach and I'm really happy with how it turned out. (laughs) I knew it was gonna be a lot, (laughs) but I was totally unprepared for how it would start before the issues even started coming out when they were just like showing cover images 
And then I was getting, you know, Wanda stands in like MCU Wanda stands in my mentions um, telling me to go to hell and die and that kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, you know, I didn't draw this, right? <laughs> we know how savage the Wanda MCU stands can be. It's there, there, there's definitely a lot of passion there. Passion's Which, one way to... <laughs> one way to put it. Scott's yeah, not the biggest Wanda fan, so he may sometimes get it. Uh... I mean, half half of it's just to provoke the the MCU Wanda fans, and that is oh, like relatable. it's like poking yeah. a hornet's nest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have three really quick listener questions for you. Of course. And I'm going to share my screen. Hey, Leah and friends, it's Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M from This Week in Marvel. Also, like, Marvel Entertainment. They do things there. Anyway, uh, Leah, my question for you is if you could see Lila Cheney go back on tour, maybe like the Krakoa for All tour, and it was her crew, her band, there was all mutants, who would join Lila Cheney on tour? Um, I like talking about Lila Cheney, so I want to hear you talk about Lila Cheney. I love that question. First of all, uh, love Ryan. He's fantastic. Um, and I'm so delighted that this is what he asked me. I, uh, first of all, if Lila Cheney goes on tour again, I want it to be in space. I want there to be yes. a battle of the bands in space. I want alien rock stars. Um, and, uh, as far as who her bandmates would be, I'm, obviously going to be super biased and bring up this band that I showed in X Factor when they were liberating the Mojoverse um, from the constraints of its like live streaming uh, indentured servitude basically. So uh, that was Dazzler and DJ and uh, not Siren yet because they're was this whole thing about the Morgan. Um, but also I would add Siren to this lineup now. Yes, that is fantastic. That is a fantastic answer. Hi, Leah. I know you said that you were approaching the Trial of Magneto as an empathy engine for Wanda Maximoff. And I was wondering if you could tell us what you see in the future for Wanda, what you would like to do with her. Um, if there's a particular X book that you think she has a really good affinity with or just where she fits in the future in your mind. And that question came from Geeky JP, who is an insanely big Wanda stand. So that is a great question. Uh, first of all, I love that question. I cannot be specific about my answer just because it would ruin my chances of actually getting to tell the story that I would love to tell with her future. Um, but uh, having said that, I see her in fully capable of, of leadership and kind of grander um, adventures beyond the mortal coil, beyond uh, physical dimensions. I think that she's capable of anything. I think she's magnificent. Um, and she is coming to a place in Trial of Magneto where she's got a really good handle on her powers and she's understanding, um, you know, how you know, her chaos magic kind of operates and how primordial and powerful it is. Uh, and I would love to see her utilizing that in just kind of a variety of, of adventures across uh, in many different circumstances. 
Well, we, we, we cannot wait to see what the future holds for Miss Miss Wanda Maximoff. This is Gray from Aaron and Halar uh, with a question for Leah Williams. I wanted to know what would Leah Williams do with X Factor if she was going to continue writing the book? So I've already talked a little bit on um, about what I would have done in, in X Factor uh, with the third arc. I think what I haven't said is um, a Polaris story that I really wanted to tell, which is basically X Factor is tasked to um, find a missing mutant because it's not just, um, you know, death and, and murder that they're investigating. They also investigate missing persons cases, missing mutant cases. If somebody uh, goes too long without a Cerebro backup, that's when it gets flagged for um, first Sage's and then uh, X Factor's attention. So it was going to start with a missing persons case and they end up finding um, this person in kind of a super max prison specifically devoted to uh, holding mutants in custody and beyond the reach of Cerebro backups. And what I wanted to do was um, have this moment where they're like kind of conspiring as a team about how to get into the prison. And we're, we're in a public place uh, near the prison, kind of like on the outskirts of, of where it is in, in town. And Prodigy starts concocting this really elaborate scheme, you know, like really convoluted almost. And then we do this and then we do this and then we do this. And then Lorna's just like, okay, stop, stop. And then she punches a cop and gets arrested and taken to the Supermax prison because she's a mutant. And uh, because she's Lorna, she kind of stages a one woman uh, prison breakout and is, you know, just magnificent in this kind of steel and concrete structure that she can crack open like an egg. Oh my God. That sounds amazing. I am so sorry that we didn't get a chance to see that. I, the, I got goosebumps when you were saying that mutants are being held in this compound beyond the reach of Cerebro. And I love the idea that is that canon yet though? Um, that, that if there, if a mutant goes too long without a backup, the Sage flags it. It was actually just kind of like a quick uh, moment at the end of X Factor issue one. So oh, it's, right. it's a, oh, yeah. and you know, it, it was like an info dump thing that I needed to establish. So I, we didn't I, get to explore it for very long, but I it's when now. Sage sure. and Forge are like setting up um, the fleet seeds and like all of this new technology for X Factor. Then they talk about kind of the missing person system. Um, and what I needed to accomplish there was how far out of range a mutant would have to be in order for Cerebro not to be able to reach them. And so the answer is like, something specifically constructed to avoid Cerebro backups, like the, you know, Supermax prison designed for mutants or um, a no place like what uh, Moira's in or, uh, you know, there, there's probably a cosmic limit that we haven't found yet or a dimensional limit we haven't found yet. Um, like Otherworld, uh, if, you, if you die in Otherworld, you come back yeah. scrambled. So I needed to establish that off the bat, but it was like so quick. <laughs> well, Leah Williams, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you. Us. Thank you so much. We're, we know where to find you. People listening know where to find you, but yeah. officially where, where, where can people find you on the interwebs? 
So on Twitter, I am my monster is chic, C-H-I-C. On Instagram, I am handaxe with an E. And on TikTok, I'm X-Men Comics because I made this TikTok before I was writing X-Men Comics and I'm a piece of shit who refuses to surrender it to my boss now. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Familia, that's our episode. Rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it, please. Smash that like button and make sure to come back. And when you do come back, make sure you wear your official Power of X-Men Age of Apocalypse t-shirt by Art of Lucas. Links are out there. You can get off a red bubble. Just support it, support the pod, support a great artist. And we will see you soon. See you next week. And as always, I'm Dayspring, and you can find me at Power of X-Men on Instagram. And I am Mr. Scott Free, and you can either find me making a fool of myself in Hell's Kitchen or uh, on Instagram and Twitter at uh, Mr. Scott Free.